Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Okay, so the best part of my job telling crazy stories is that people often tell me crazy stories. Stories about Bigfoot, UFOs, Illuminati, all kinds of fantastic adventures. I wish I could share them all. But while this is not the news, no way is this the news. We still do need some kind of proof before broadcasting that the restroom in a South Florida mini mart is a portal to another dimension. As much as I want to believe it, trust me, I do want to believe it. I got to push one of my producers into the portal first, you know, to check. And that's when things often fizzle out. When normalcy reasserts itself, when a restroom is just a restroom. But not today. Today, we go inside one of the most secret, most outlandish projects in U.S. military history. And it's all true. You already know your tax dollars go towards some weird stuff. However, today, on Snap Judgment, we're going to hear from a man who helped the Army build a weapon, a secret weapon, they thought could put an end to World War II. And it's not the one you're thinking of. From WNYC Studios and Snap Judgment's underground lair, welcome to the other secret weapon. My name is Glenn Washington. Understand, no scheme is too far-fetched. When you're listening, to Snap Judgment. Please note, our story does detail a war situation involving both people and animals. Listener discretion is advised. I was on a museum expedition at the time on uh, Santa Rosa Island, which is a cattle ranch. My job on that was digging fossils. Yeah, it was of a pygmy mammoth. We had its lower jaw half dug out, and some cowboys rode up. One of them said, Pearl Harbor was bombed last night. I said, Pearl Harbor? Where's that? This happened to be on my birthday, December 7th, 1941. Just turned 18 on that day. Did you imagine that you would end up swept up in the war itself? No, I didn't imagine there'd be a war. One, two, three, four, five. Uh, You know, I'm very hard of hearing. That's going to be a problem here. Jack Coffer is almost 95. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you well now. He's a filmmaker and author, 
But he's also the last surviving member of a secret government project that was supposed to end the war with Japan. People have little feeling for the desperation that was felt throughout the USA during the beginnings of the war. Jack wasn't a weapons expert. He wasn't in politics. He wasn't a physicist. He was in high school. I was a bit more adventuresome than the average student. I mean, I had a real job. I was a student assistant at the L.A. County Museum of Natural History. He worked in the mammalogy department at the museum, and his boss was an expert on bats. And that sort of rubbed off on me. What happened? It was trying to get in the window. A big bat. I think there's a lot of misinformation about bats. They're actually totally innocent of any anti-human activity. Children of the night, what music they I find them as just charming mammals that happen to have wings. One day, shortly after Pearl Harbor, Jack was working at the museum. I was writing labels for specimens when Doc Adams came in and introduced himself. Dr. Lytle Adams. He wanted to talk with Jack and his boss, the bat expert. He said he came from the War Department, but he didn't look it. We always thought he looked like Santa Claus without a beard. He was short, very chubby, always had a cheerful attitude. He carried with him a tattered briefcase, and inside... There was a letter from President Roosevelt saying, this guy is not a nut. Listen to him. It was that brief. Doc Adams wanted to talk to them about bats. He wasn't actually in the military. He was a dentist, actually, a Pennsylvania dentist. And on the day Pearl Harbor was attacked, Doc had been on vacation at Carlsbad Caverns. And he saw the bats. And as he was driving away, listening to news reports on the radio, he got an idea. Bats, he thought, could serve a purpose in this new war. Number one, they're available in great numbers. Number two, female bats carry their young in flight. So they can fly carrying a load. And most importantly, bats roost in dark, inaccessible places like attics and the eaves of buildings. Ideal places to start fires. The plan Doc came up with was, and stay with me here, to build a bomb that, when dropped, would release a million bats with tiny timed explosives attached to their bodies. The bats would then fly off and start fires all over enemy cities. Doc happened to know Eleanor Roosevelt, and he wrote a letter to the president who gave this crazy scheme the green light. The Army Air Force dubbed the project the Adams Plan. He sounds like he was kind of a mad scientist. Well, he was mad, but not a scientist. He was a mad promoter, and he had a good idea. Jack and his boss were intrigued by Doc's pitch. It seemed logical, yeah, based on the physiology of the bats, yes. And even though they knew many bats would have to be sacrificed to make the plan work... 
everyone in the country was bent to do whatever they could to win this war. And uh, if it meant killing some bats, so what? Because people were dying. The life of a bat uh, meant very little under those uh, circumstances. A lot of strange weapons were developed during the war. The British had rat bombs, the Soviets had dog bombs, the Japanese had balloon bombs. The U.S. government also developed a pigeon-guided missile. I have a friend who was a part of that effort, but uh, I didn't know about it at the time. The bat bomb, though, had more potential than the rest, especially in Japan, where many buildings were made with wood and other inflammable materials. With enough bats, Adams said, you could start enough fires to destroy Japan's infrastructure and win the war. And with very little loss of life. I mean, sure, some people would die in the fires, but most of them would get out of their buildings and not perish. I mean, really, though, the idea of setting a whole city on fire, it seems like there would be a lot of casualties. Well... There would be casualties, but not casualties like an anti-bomb casualty. For Jack, this was a great opportunity to serve his country and hang out with bats. So when Doc asked him to join the team, he agreed. He was such a personable guy that you couldn't turn him down. Jack had already been drafted into the Army, and Doc pulled some strings and got him assigned to the Adams plan. We were a super-secret organization. We each carried a paper signed by a colonel saying no questions will be tolerated. Nobody can even question us. There were 15 members in this unit. The bat guys, including Jack, and the scientists working on the tiny explosives. The unit was also assigned an airplane and two pilots. And they had an unofficial mascot a large bat that Jack had decided to keep as a pet. Oh, we found him in a church in Pasadena, and uh, I don't know, I was just attracted to him. What was the name of the bat? Flamethrower. Seemed like a, like a fun name for a bat. In retrospect, it seems like it was a perhaps a silly operation, but at the time, we took it very seriously. We just thought of it in terms of, of the job we had to do. Not that we were getting off light, although we were, weren't we? Because we weren't getting shot at. While the scientists worked on the tiny bombs, the bat guy's job was to find the bats, specifically Mexican free-tailed bats. They needed millions of them for the Adams plan to work. So Doc and Jack and a few others set off in Doc's car across the Southwest. Well, at the time, he had a, a top-of-the-line Buick sedan, and we used this car pretty much like a Jeep going into rough country with this big Buick. They combed the deserts, caves, abandoned mine shafts, but they didn't find the multitude of bats they were looking for. And then they heard about an old-timer in a small town in Texas who might be able to help. He was called the Batshit Man. 
because he dug bat guano out of caves and sold it as fertilizer. At dusk, the bat shit man took Jack and Doc up into the hills outside of town. He led them to the mouth of a cave about 40 feet wide. Just a black hole. They heard a sound coming from deep beneath the earth. A million bat winds are fluttering inside a cave that makes quite a noise. The noise grew louder as the bats got closer to the entrance and closer to where we were. Suddenly, the mass of them erupted from the cave and it had a stream of bats 30, 40 feet in diameter coming out of the cave and just disappearing and breaking up into clumps all in search of mosquitoes. Yeah, it's quite impressive. For three hours, the river of bats poured out of the cave. Jack and Doc didn't know it, but they just found the largest population of Mexican free-tailed bats in the world. We had six million bats inside one of these caves. That was like a gold miner discovering gold. It was a great relief because it was what we'd been hoping for. When we return, the Army puts the Adams plan to the test. It does not go as planned. Snap judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the other secret weapon. When last we left the Adams plan, Jack and Doc stood at the mouth of a cave that contained all the bats they need to make their bomb a reality. The only thing left was to put it to the test. Snap Judgment. While Jack and Doc were out finding the bats, the scientists had perfected the tiny bombs that would be attached to them. Each one weighed less than a double-A battery, and they were filled with napalm. You could take one of these bat bombs and put it on a 12-by-12 plank and ignite it, and it would start that plank on fire. The Adams plan had been in development for nearly a year and a half, and it was time to put it to the test. Jack, Doc, and the rest of the team gathered on the runway of a brand new airfield in New Mexico. The brass were there to observe the test, as well as photographers from the Army Signal Corps. Well, excited isn't the word. I wasn't excited. Did you think that it would work? Yes. They all watched as a B-29 bomber climbed high into the sky. It dropped a metal container, looked just like a bomb, had metal fins and a tail, except inside were over a thousand live bats. Bats that had been refrigerated, so they would be in a state of artificial hibernation. A parachute opened up, and the sides of the metal container fell away, revealing stacks of cardboard trays like egg cartons, inside of which the bats were nestled tight. They woke up, or at least some of them did, and flew away pulling a safety cord attached to a tiny explosive glued to their chest that in just 10 minutes would turn them into balls of fire. For this test, the bats weren't armed with actual explosives. 
some of the bats in cages on the ground were, which will be important in a moment, but not the ones released from the airplane. Those bats were later found roosting peacefully in a nearby barn. The test was almost a success. And then... The Army Signal Corps unit had permission to take photographs of bats. One of them got somebody to open one of the bat cages, and he happened to open the cages with three or four armed with actual incendiaries, and these bats flew out into the brand-new base and took their position in inflammable places, which quickly became inflamed. It burned down the observation tower, I remember that, because we have a photograph of that. And I think one barracks burned down. And that was the end of the project so far as the Army Air Force was concerned. They considered it too dangerous. But lucky for the Adams plan, a Marine Corps general had been there for the test. And he took the burning down of the airfield as a good sign. So the project transferred to the Marines. Yeah, it was a relief because we thought we were out of business. The Adams plan was in a critical phase. They'd zeroed in on where they wanted to drop the bat bomb, a ring of cities around Osaka Bay where much of Japan's industry was located. It was just a perfect target for the bats. But in order to be ready to deploy it as soon as testing was complete, they would need to have millions of bats on standby. And time was of the essence. It was late 1943, and the free-tailed bats were about to migrate south for the winter. That could not happen. So Doc Adams ordered that one of the large caves they'd found in Texas be sealed off with chicken wire so the bats couldn't fly away. Jack was sent to guard the cave. He was all by himself. And at dusk, the bats began to stir. They wanted out and were massing against the chicken wire. Piling up a foot deep against the screen, trying to get out. And a good percentage of them uh, uh, died and were falling to the ground at the foot of that mesh. And I, I, I couldn't see that happen. Jack was prepared to carpet bomb cities with flaming bats. But this was too much. I was frightened, horrified, and nearly moved to tears. Disobeying direct orders, he got a ladder and cut down the chicken wire. The bats rushed past him and were free. It's an unimaginable sensation to be pelted by thousands of bats per minute. Many would not be seen again until next spring. It was a serious blow to the project's bat reserve. Now, this upset Doc Adams greatly. I mean, it was the first time that he really turned against me and called me a saboteur. I think he actually used that term. But the rest of the team backed up Jack's decision. They told Doc that a cave full of dead bats would have been useless to them. I was convinced then, and I'm convinced today I did the right thing. And I think eventually he was convinced that I did the right thing. In 
The bomb was successfully tested one more time on a replica of a Japanese village that the military had built in the middle of Utah. But shortly after that, the project was unceremoniously shut down. No reason was given. Jack was transferred to Air Sea Rescue, and Doc went back home. He got in his old tattered giant Buick car and was driving away toward Pennsylvania. That was the last time I had any contact with Doc. I liked Doc a lot, incidentally. He was a, a real character. He returned to dentistry. He opened a dentistry in, uh, I think it was Idaho. I don't know why Idaho, but uh, it was there. It didn't take long for Jack to figure out why the Adams plan had been shut down. The military had another secret weapon. Of course, we didn't know that. That that was even more secret than our secret project. The atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And though this marked the end of World War II, many have argued in years since that Japan was already defeated and the bombings were completely unnecessary. Over 200,000 people, mostly civilians, were killed. Do you ever imagine what the world would be like if the bat bomb had been used instead of a nuclear bomb? I can't imagine that it would be much different. We must be ready every day, all the time. Duck and cover. It's amusing for me to think about, instead of people being afraid of nuclear weapons, you know, people being afraid of bats in the same way. Do you think that might have happened? Well, I'm afraid it would have. Uh, I mean, bats have a hard enough time without people being afraid of them carrying bat bombs around. Snap Nation, from me to you, I sincerely hope that they leave those bats alone. Leave them alone. Now, for all the sound geeks out there, take note. That story featured actual field recordings from one of the actual caves that Jack found, Bracken Cave near San Antonio, Texas. Those recordings were made by Geneva Skiing in 2017 and were brought to us with permission from the Bat Conservation International. Big love to producer Elizabeth Nakano for her help with this story and special thanks to Dr. Peter Kuznick from the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. The original score and performance of that score by Snap Judgment's Renzo Gorio. The story is produced by John Vasile. It's that time. If you dug it, Facebook it, tweet it, put a letter in a bottle. It's the only way this works. But know this. More storytelling magic awaits your listening pleasure right now. Right now. Snapjudgment.org. That was brought to you by hope, joy, and the flapping of a million butterfly wings. Please give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. That's Pat Masidi Miller on the bass and assessment on the drums, mandolin by John Facile, harpsichord by Renzo Gorio, 
Eliza Smith, she plays the recorder. Nancy Lopez on the harmonica. Liz Mack rocks the sousaphone. Jesus Egan on the washboard. Leon Wadimoto waves a feather. Tail to cot hand bones. While Jasmine Aguilera just snaps her fingers. You've heard word on the street that this is not the news. No way it's the news. In fact, you could work with bats to create a weapon. But then get a mansion and a sidekick and run around solving crimes at night only to realize it was really their plan all along, not yours, and you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.